This morning I want to continue with uh, the series of talks. Uh, there will be five talks total on the theme of dependent origination or the understanding of the causes and conditions of uh, suffering on the one hand and freedom and liberation of the mind and heart and of minds and hearts on the other. And this is the fourth of the uh, talks that I'll aim to conclude uh, next time. And I've uh, divided the talks really into three main uh, areas of focus. Uh, The first two times especially, we looked at the model of dependent origination understood as a model of what are the causes or the model of the causes of suffering. And remembering that uh, here, as with I think all the discussions, we are using the term suffering in a somewhat precise way. I've I've really made this point each of the last sessions. But that suffering is understood especially as reactivity, the resistance, often compulsive, of the mind, body, and heart to present experience. And that suffering is distinguished from pain or the presence of the unpleasant. The presence of the unpleasant or pain is a human given. It is there at times. It's not something that one wants to overcome. We couldn't really overcome it. On the other hand, we can respond skillfully when there is pain. Suffering is understood as the reaction to what is there, often the reaction to what's unpleasant, and the reaction in somewhat automatic and compulsive ways. And that is taken as the root of suffering. In other words, the fundamental message here, and this is really the core message of the Buddha, could be said quite simply, it's that this inability to be present with what is in a balanced way is understood as the root of suffering. And that inability to be present in a balanced, wise, and compassionate way with what is, which becomes suffering, also is understood as being cyclical, as being cyclical and repetitive. So when there is suffering and we don't see it or work skillfully with it, it will tend to engender further suffering, whether it's personal, relational, or collective. And much of human life follows that pattern of suffering. And so the teachings here are that we're exploring are first the most detailed analysis of the cycle of causes and conditions that lead to suffering. The teaching itself is just of that analysis. It doesn't in itself tell us what to do about it. The rest of the teachings do, and the rest of the teachings and practices. But that analysis of dependent origination, which is the first area, 
that we looked at, especially the first two times. And I I have to say, uh, uh, for those who weren't here, that all of the talks, uh, all the previous three talks in this series are recorded and are on uh, Dharma Seed on the internet, dharmaseed.org. And uh, the focus last time was the was on given that analysis, how do we actually intervene to stop the cycles of suffering? And I'll, in a moment, give a brief review of those first two themes. And then the last theme I want to bring out today is of a, of a related but different model which is called liberative dependent origination, sometimes called transcendental <coughs> dependent origination. And on the handout, the different links are given. And this is a model which is way less prominent, unfortunately, in the teachings. It's really ensconced in one little three or four page text. And it appears a few other times, but it really it doesn't have the prominence. The Buddha said, of the first model, the model of dependent origination, this is the fruit of my awakening. And he said, whoever sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma, which is the essentially saying, sees the core truth, sees the um, way things are, see, understands the core teachings. Whoever uh, understands and sees the Dhamma, sees dependent origination. So the, uh, this last model is a model of the causes and conditions of freedom or liberation. And I'm going to uh, be introducing that maybe probably in the last half or two-thirds of the talk and continue on with that next time. So... Uh, that's that's the, the emphasis. So I wanted to today then briefly review the first two parts because I think it's helpful just to come back to that, uh, partly for the sake of review, partly because some people weren't here for those sessions. And I don't want this to be totally mystifying. Uh, but I think it's very, very, actually very, very uh, practical. And so I'll do that in the first part and then go into this new territory of liberative dependent origination, which isn't actually taught that much. But it's a very it's a very interesting teaching. And so it really is another way of talking about how we intervene, although it's not quite so explicitly connected with all the links of all of those twelve links. Okay, so first the review of dependent origination, then a review of how we intervene, and then onward to liberation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You ready? Okay. <laughs> okay. Very good. Okay. So, okay. So I explained uh, probably the last few times that um, dependent origination in itself is a term simply referring to the fact that everything is caught in a web of causes and conditions, and so dependent origination <clears throat> actually uh, most generally refers to that fact of every aspect of our experience, all phenomena being the results of causes and conditions. You know, it's, we could say it's actually close to a scientific point of view, you know, that everything has causes, and presumably that we can understand what those causes are, 
in order to act more skillfully in the world. And so it's a very general principle, uh, and the Buddha expressed it uh, in a certain way, saying, when this occurs, that occurs. When this doesn't occur, that doesn't occur. That's pretty much the general principle. And then the model of dependent origination that we have in this uh, teaching is that general idea of uh, causality, or we might say uh, everything being related to causes and conditions, uh, applied to the question of suffering. So it's really applied to what we might take to be the most fundamental human question, which is how can we be happy, how can we be free, and what stands in the way? You know, in, in the language here is that uh, uh, suffering stands in the way, or suffering is the opposite of happiness. Suffering is the opposite of freedom. Again, understanding suffering in that special way, not in the usual way that in English it's used synonymously with pain. Again, here we're making that distinction between pain and suffering. You know, and then again, I, I think sometimes of the a story that I heard when I was uh, teaching in Kentucky of <clears throat> a woman who I think worked in a hospital, and she said there was a woman who was at a hosp- in a hospice who was in the last part of her life, who was a double amputee, and she had a sign at the end of her bed that said, uh, pain is a given, suffering is optional. Quite a statement, right? For, for that person to make, you know, that's, as it were, applying this teaching to perhaps the, some of the hardest imaginable conditions, right? But that is the teaching. And the, uh, again, the core teaching will be that there is some kind of reaction or uh, resistance to present moment experience, especially understood as uh, uh, pushing away reactively the unpleasant or grabbing hold of the pleasant that sets up the cycles of suffering. And it's going to be possible to uh, work through that. It's going to be possible to... um, Need some water? So we talked about uh, last time about interventions to <laughs> uh, to respond to potential suffering or actual suffering. So those of you uh, listening uh, after the time of this talk, um, um, someone was in need of water. <laughs> okay. So the, the the core teaching is going to be that it's this uh, way that our minds get out of balance because of the presence of the pleasant and the unpleasant, and we essentially lose touch with our wisdom, with our compassion, with our love, and that it's going to be possible, and that this is the root of suffering, and it's going to be possible to um, work with the cycle of suffering so that we don't do that, basically so that we can see our patterns, work through them, and manifest those qualities of wisdom, compassion, 
love, courage, and so forth, different factors that are taken to be uh, aspects of our, of our deeper nature, or of sometimes it could be said of our awakened nature. So this is, and this is the, the teaching that's going to be repeated over and over again, a very simple teaching, and we find it, I think, in other traditions, some versions of it, but this is, this is what the teaching is. And everything here that we're given are tools to uh, make this practical. You know, because it's, uh, it's, cha- it's a challenging teaching, right? It's a challenging teaching how to make this practical. So we have, first of all, the model of dependent origination as uh, a model of 12 factors. And uh, I, to simplify... I've divided them up at times into factors one through five are what we bring to experience. Factors six through nine are what happens in experience. Thank you. And then factors 10 through 12 are the consequences of experience. The teaching basically is when there is, when we bring ignorance and certain tendencies based on ignorance, to experience at those moments of experience given certain conditions and that's expressed in six through nine we will tend to be reactive concretely that means that when we have uh, a pleasant feeling tone number seven factor number seven when we have a pleasant feeling tone that will tend to lead to eight craving which will tend to lead to nine grasping and then the whole cycle, 10 through 12, basically the whole cycle is continued. So the, uh, the model is understood that suffering the, has a cyclical repetitive pattern and that basically every time we act, action has a particular focus here. And action is actually the word that uh, we tr- would translate by the word karma or kama that it's basically action has a very important function here because it's said that when we act, in a sense, we solidify a habit. Right? We solidify a certain habit. When we don't act, let's say that we cut off the tendency between eight and nine and we don't act, then we are not furthering that habit. So the action has a very particular uh, force here that when we, let's say, say something unskillful, we act unskillful, we are in a sense continuing that. And that's, that's really the essence of 10 through 12. Okay? So it's a, it's a simple model. And I mentioned last time that we can look to see how we intervene in a number of different ways. The question would be, given the, the, the cyclical nature of suffering, the repetitive nature, it really is the, uh, the word that we sometimes use is samsara, which you've probably heard, which uh, I think is a perfume, right? No? <laughs> anyone, anyone ever tried samsara perfume? <laughs> I think it's a perfume, right? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is just the beginning. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so, um, samsara which is understood, is un- actually understood as also having, uh, the, some of the roots, I think, have to do with the notion of a circle, that our confusion is understood to have a circular, which means repetitive, 
nature. And you'll see that uh, actually when we intervene, we stop the cycle going. This is, you know, we, we sometimes talk about cycles of violence, right? One thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. This is really the analysis here, that uh, there's a cyclical process, which means, especially when we have identified these 12 factors, that it becomes possible to intervene and stop the cycle. And that's what our practice is about. And of course, this is just one, the picture of uh, our suffering understood these 12 factors to give a broader picture. This is what, this is the way we are when we're locked in suffering. That it's going to, the analysis is it's based in ignorance and dispositions. And then we will, when we have certain experiences, we will tend to act in certain ways. This isn't saying that we are always locked into suffering. Obviously, we are a mix, right? We are a mix. We have other processes going in which we have uh, openness, clarity, kindness, and wisdom, right? And so all of that's going on. This isn't, I think, at least on my interpretation, this is not a description of the human nature of human nature as such. This is a description of human nature to the extent that ignorance holds sway. Okay? And that's that's important. So this isn't the totality of our life, but it's to the extent that we have suffering, this is very valuable to look at. And so last time I talked about how do we understand um, intervention according to this model. And I I used I particularly focused on four areas where we can intervene. And those were essentially one and two, and then uh, uh, seven and eight, and then nine. And these are, we can understand this, the places we can intervene, or we can intervene and uproot our ignorance. We can also work at our dispositions, our tendencies, our urges. We can also, uh, in the focus on feeling tone, craving or pushing away, there we're focusing on present experience and working with it. There we would use a tool, especially of mindfulness. And then with the last one, which I would call action, um, we particularly will can, could focus both, I think, both on mindfulness, but especially ethics. That's how I was interpreted last time. And I'll, I'll go backwards with that. So sometimes we may have a lot of ignorance. We may have strong dispositions to act unskillfully. We may have certain experiences in which we feel a lot of craving or aversion. But we're still, say, I will act ethically. You know, so we might have, let's say, a difficult interaction with someone. We might have a certain ignorance tendency to always want to get my way. I always want to get my way. That's my urge or my disposition. That leads to a difficult discussion where I have an unpleasant feeling tone, which leads to wanting to say something nasty to this person. And without uh, having come on Wednesday mornings or having further, <laughs> further trained, I would just blithely say something nasty. The habit would be strengthened. I'd suffer. The other person would suffer and I'd be reinforcing the whole cycle, right? Now, because I've had some training, even though this is a very strong tendency, it could be a high degree of difficulty for myself, but because I, uh, I remember the ethical guideline 
uh, essentially related to speech. And I noticed myself tending to speak in a really nasty way. And I remember the guidelines for wise speech to be truthful, helpful, come out of a warm heart and have good timing or appropriateness. And I say, even though I'm feeling this way, I'm not going to speak, right? And that is intervention in the cycle. That is a significant intervention in the cycle that's helped by following our ethical guidelines. And I think we need a certain amount of mindfulness just to know what's happening, right? That, so we need the mindfulness there. But that is a way we intervene. As I remarked last time, uh, that is very significant, but of course it doesn't uproot all the other stuff, right? We still have to work in other ways. But that's going to be one way of stopping the cycle is basically by having enough awareness so that we, at the last moment, as it were, you know, one has happened, two has happened, three has happened, four has happened, five has happened, six has happened, feeling tone is activated, aversion is activated, and then, nonetheless, I intervene and I don't act unskillfully, right? You know, miracle, right? (laughs) Right, but it happens, and that's a way of intervening. And then we can kind of work back from that and say, in the same instance, maybe I start to really become aware more uh, uh, quickly or earlier that there's uh, something happening in my mind. And that's where I apply mindfulness. Maybe I apply loving kindness. I, I work with present experience. It's another way to intervene. I work with it. I actually study how my mind's working. Right? I study it. I watch this tendency a hundred times. I hang out with the unpleasant feeling. Oh, I'm feeling really uh, reactive, right? I study it. I use mindfulness. I use other tools. I get to know it well. Through that process, I more quickly notice it when it comes up either in meditation or in the flow of daily life. And then I'm more able not to act and maybe even to have enough awareness to do something skillful or to say, you know, I really, um, I'm really feeling angry about what happened, and you know, I could maybe use speech in a way where I'm not, as it were, blaming the other, but just saying, I'm really feeling upset and reactive. Could we talk about it? Maybe now is not the right time, but could we talk about it later, right? Something like that. And that, could, that would be a fruit of mindfulness. That would also stop that cycle. And it might even stop any, you know, it might actually work with an interpersonal cycle, that may have been going on for quite some time, co-worker, partner, whatever, when I act like that. So that's another way of intervention, is to, is to particularly, and ideally we use all these tools together, but here we're using the tool of mindfulness, looking, studying ourselves. You know, as I say often, we develop quickly when we get really interested in our own reactivity and times that we lose it. Wouldn't that be a great book title? (laughs) Have interest in when you lose it, or studying when you lose it. But um, it's actually quite important, and it's actually uh, a sign, I think it's a sign of growing maturity in a sense, spiritual maturity, because we have enough confidence and enough solidity to say, oh, I lost it, and I'm still okay, right? I'm okay, I can study when I lose it. So that's quite important. That's the second way of intervention. And as we... Uh, study the mindfulness, we start going more deeply and start having some access 
to one and two, to ignorance and dispositions or tendencies. A lot of times, ignorance and dispositions are relatively unconscious. They're not so accessible. Part of the process of of mindfulness and investigation, and it's partly supported by teachings, start start helping us to see beneath the surface and be able to see, start seeing, oh, gosh, I've had this tendency for a long time. When I don't get my way, I get angry or whatever. You know, we can start to see tendencies and we could actually trace it back. And I, last time I gave the example of people whom I work with in the area of working with the judgmental mind and how we often can trace that. We trace the judgments back. People look at their patterns And again, as I mentioned last time, when we're doing this work, looking at reactivity and looking at cycles of suffering, it's very important to hold everything with compassion. So I think if we're doing this a lot, it's good to have a heart practice, loving kindness, forgiveness, compassion practice, because this is going into, you know, places where it hurts and where there could be woundedness. And they're hard places. So having some ways of doing compassion, and at times, if it's too much, pulling back and just coming back to what uh, gives one uh, more balance, you know, in the moment or in a given month or whatever. So when I work with people with judgments, we have them not just be mindful of what the, when the judgments are happening, but also start to see the patterns, start to see the patterns by which judgments occur we trace those back and use other tools to start going into what's less accessible. We start seeing the urges. We can see ultimately what, what I call, uh, along with other people, we sometimes call core beliefs. I mentioned this last time, that may be driving behavior. And at first they are half conscious or unconscious. You know, if I have a, a core belief, and the, one, the example I used, uh, I used a few examples last time, but if I have a core belief that uh, uh, I should always get my way, <laughs> which is supported by advertising <laughs> and aspects of our culture. And so if I have a kind of core belief that way or that happiness lies in me getting what I want in some, all the time, or it could be a, a more psychological aspect of it. It could be we could have a core belief that I am not, this part of me is not okay, or this part of my life is not okay. And that can lead to a lot of self-judgment. So this other way of intervention takes longer. We can do it meditatively, we can do it psychologically. We start to uncover our urges and tendencies, our core beliefs, which I think are both of a personal and psychological nature, and they also are of a more existential nature, that is really, I think, especially what the Buddha is pointing to, we have core beliefs in a separate self rather than an interdependent relational self. We have core beliefs that happiness comes from accumulating pleasant experiences. And the teaching is going to be that that's not true, but it's still a core belief. And so a lot of our investigation and meditation and using mindfulness gradually gets at those core beliefs, which are the nature of ignorance. And that takes time. So these are four ways of intervening. Now, 
to do so, to intervene in those ways, we are not just, as it were, looking at the habits and patterns related to suffering, but we're also calling upon certain qualities that we have to develop. And so the, the uh, three traditional areas of training are wisdom, meditation, and ethics. And you'll see that there's actually a certain way that ethics particularly relates to action. Meditation particularly relates to that area of looking at feeling, tone, and craving. And then as we go more deeply, wisdom particularly relates to what's more unconscious, the dispositions and the ignorance. So it's an interesting way in which we develop these qualities uh, in order to be able even to carry out the investigation of suffering. (laughs) Another way of saying this is our practice has these two fundamental um, areas of focus. One of them is, is that we look with mindfulness especially, but also with wisdom, at our patterns, our habits, and so forth. And a lot of that is looking at what causes suffering. On the other hand, we develop wonderful qualities of the awakened heart, mind, and body. Right? And uh, in fact, we c- couldn't really look at suffering unless we had some of those qualities. So mindfulness is such a quality. Loving kindness and compassion are such qualities. Uh, wisdom is such a quality. Uh, and we have to cultivate that. That's why we come here in the protected environment and we take half an hour, 40 minutes, because we are strengthening, hopefully, mindfulness and developing wisdom, or we hear talks. This is all strengthening these qualities. So on the one hand, we're looking into the difficult stuff. On the other hand, we're looking and developing the beautiful qualities, you know, what we might call our awakened heart, mind, and body. And we do both, and they, they require each other. And sometimes, as I mentioned in the case of judgment, sometimes we focus more on one than on the other. You know, and it's very personal. You know, in my own uh, personal experience, when I was first practicing, I was really interested in developing insight and having great transcendent experiences, which um, would somewhat be like what I had experienced with uh, psychedelics. <laughs> True confession, I will now never become president of the United States. <laughs> okay. Uh, but there was some, and I won't ask who followed a similar path. <laughs> but this was some of my, and I had done a lot of reading, and I wanted to have these great, fantastic experiences. And so my initial emphasis was a little bit more on the beautiful experiences. And I thought that all the talk about suffering was primarily for other people. <laughs> so you could see how there was. You could analyze that on this model. <laughs> Did you in well, I had some, but pretty soon. I mean, I won't go into detail, but I remember one time I was really trained. I really I wanted to really transcend, <clears throat> transcend, <laughs> and um, and I uh, really summoned all my concentration. Had some interesting experiences, and I immediately got sick. I developed a cold. I was on retreat, developed a cold. I had no way to concentrate at all. And I had to just sit there with my sniffles. And I became very self-conscious and thought I was messing up everyone's meditation. I had to look at my self-image. And it, in other words, 
I started to understand the meaning of investigating suffering. <laughs> That's a true story. And, uh, and so then, you know, there was a cycle of, oh, I really, you know, then I didn't choose it, but I really looked at quite a bit of suffering, just how I wanted to control experience, um, just have good experiences, have a certain image of myself as a great meditator, and so forth. And all that, at different times, kind of came crashing down. So there was a cycle, you see. And then, and then at other times, I kind of stayed with that for, you know, maybe 10 years. <laughs> um, other things happened. There were beautiful experiences, too, but a lot of that. And then, then other cycles open up. It's kind of cyclical, you know. So there are these rhythms of beautiful t- experiences, uh, hard experiences. And it's also something we can do consciously. You know, when I work with people and it seems like too hard, I say, okay, like I remember... One person who's working with judgmental mind came to me and said, this is so hard. I'm looking at the roots of my judgments, and it's so painful. I said, okay, next month, let's do joy practice, right? And because uh, it was, seemed to be getting in the overwhelming area. Okay. So um, this last teaching is that called liberative dependent arising. And this is a teaching that's more of developing the beautiful qualities, And it's very complementary to everything we've looked at. And this is basically saying that, uh, and you can, if you want to look at the list of the uh, factors, this is a teaching which uh, starts with suffering. Very interesting. And the basic logic here is very interesting. And in in the actual text in which this teaching is expressed, and it's expressed very, very briefly. Uh, In the teaching which just is expressed, they work with the whole 12 factors of regular dependent origination. And then the last of them, which I, you know, on the handout is aging aging and death. But in in other versions, it's uh, called aging, death, lamentation, sorrow, and so forth. It's really shorthand for suffering. In the teaching on liberative dependent origination, they actually use the same word, they use the word dukkha or suffering which we translate as suffering. And it's interesting in saying this path by which we develop the conditions and causes for freedom starts with suffering. Very interesting. And what it starts with is a different attitude to suffering. That becomes the key for turning one away from the cycle of suffering. That suffering is seen as something that we can work with, that we have tools, that we have uh, skills. In other words, that the reactivity in the mind is workable. That becomes the turning point away from the habitual cycle of suffering. And so this is, this is extremely significant And that when we work skillfully with suffering... I'll I'll go over the teaching very briefly here and then I think go into maybe the first few factors. When we're able to work skillfully with suffering, what this, it starts to open up our practice. And because of that, there's a certain faith that develops in the workability of experience. I am not a victim of my conditioning. I can respond to it. And according, according to this model, it starts to open up a number of very positive qualities in our being. That there, it opens up 
a quality that's called here faith. The translation is faith. Or we could another way to another translation would be confidence. Ah, oh, suffering is workable. I can go into that difficult situation without the total fear and dread that I've always had. You know, but rather it's still difficult, but it's workable. Does this correlate with uh, what Sylvia talks about with Four Noble Truths, with peace is possible? Yeah. Yeah, that, the question is, does that correlate with uh, the, the sense that peace is possible, which is, a sense, which is uh, sometimes identified with the third noble truth? And I would say yes, it, it, it's, it's related to it, that, that this is workable, that suffering is, is not my fate. In other words, my past, my conditioning, my difficult times are not my fate. Rather, it's workable, and this leads to a certain kind of faith in um, the possibilities of experience, and maybe can be a faith in the teachings and the practices, which leads in turn to a sense of joy, or another translation there is delight, uh, which can open up to a sense of rapture or kind of a, a further joy. The mind gets quiet, tranquility, a deeper happiness evolves. Uh, the sixth factor, which leads the, the deepening happiness, the mind quiets down, we're not quite so reactive, there's concentration. Concentration permits us to see clearly, knowledge and vision of things as they are. We get disenchanted with following our old conditioning. We uh, start to become less pushed and pulled by uh, want, by wanting and, and uh, aversion. And this leads to liberation from the uh, cycles of suffering. And then in, this, in, the, uh, in the context of the teachings of the Buddha, after liberation, there's a kind of review of the process of liberation. And we have a sense of knowledge of how essentially a greed, hatred, and delusion have been cut through. So what this model does is it basically, the most important thing I think for us with this model is that it points to the turning point of working with suffering in a different way. You know, maybe our conditioned tendency was to take suffering as a curse, right? My bad luck. Too bad, you know. I wish this didn't happen. And instead, we take suffering, again, in the form of reactivity as pointing to this being workable. So let me go, I'm going to think I want to go over just the first maybe two or three factors here and then do the rest next time. Well, I would say that the other aspect of this model that's very interesting is, first of all, just being able to look at these different qualities like faith and joy and rapture and to see some of their interrelationship. You know, some of them that are particularly interesting for me is how a suffering can, uh, being workable can open up to faith and the other one I'm particularly, that's very, very interesting, two of them, one of them is how a happy mind leads to concentration, which is quite interesting in terms of our meditation, and then how a concentrated mind leads to knowledge. So it's looking at the value of some of these qualities which we can develop uh, through practices. So let me say a little bit more, I think about the first, maybe just the first two or three factors, and then we'll open things up. Um, Once the Buddha talked about suffering 
explicitly using this model of a circle. He drew a circle in the sand and showed that suffering has this circular uh, rhythm, a cir- circular pattern. Very much like in English we use the word vicious uh, cycle, right? Or vicious circle, I should say. And it's very much the same idea that we go round and round, we're caught by habits, and it's very hard to get out of them. And some of you know the story that Jack Kornfield tells of being with his teacher, Achan Cha, and and Jack also came into meditation partly by an interest in psychedelics from the 1960s. <laughs> I think that's public information. I'm not <laughs> blowing the... <laughs> Blowing his cover. No, I think. Um, um, in any case, I better be careful what I say. This goes out to the internet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, any case. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we know I won't be president. <laughs> uh, I think I knew that earlier. <laughs> uh, and so. Um, his teacher approached him and said, right when he came to the monastery, I hope you're not afraid of suffering. And Jack said, what do you mean? As if I came here for bliss and understanding. And his teacher, Achan Chah, said, there are two kinds of suffering. There is the suffering that leads towards further suffering, which is that continual repetitive cycle. And there's the suffering which leads to the end of suffering which is, really points to this very powerful fact. We can see it also in people's lives, right? We see some people who have these really difficult experiences involving suffering and profound learning comes out of it. Certain, some people have it that way and we see other people who have suffering and for whatever reason it leads to further suffering and they don't get out of it, right? And I think it's really related to are the causes and conditions there that make possible taking suffering as part of a learning experience that leads to the end of suffering? That's what we're interested in. And it does take certain causes and conditions. We can probably look to the lives of people who were able to learn from suffering and see that there were causes and conditions which made it possible. And for those who couldn't do it, we could see that for whatever reason the causes and conditions that would have been supportive for making a learning process were not there, which is tragic, right? But that's, it, it happens. And so that's, what we, that's, that's really the turning point. Some of it's the perspective, having certain tools, having supports, having conditions. And then we, uh, and then we can really uh, open up in this way to... Uh, work with suffering in a constructive way. Maybe I'll say just a little bit about faith and then I'll stop and we'll go into the other factors uh, next time. So the faith that we're talking about here, again, I think maybe even, I I think I prefer the translation of confidence because faith gets into all these echoes with Western traditions where we talk about blind faith and faith and dogmas and so forth. That's not what we're talking about. So I think confidence is a better term. That we're really, that when we, it's really, uh, again, the faith or the confidence that I can work with my suffering. That's what we're looking for. 
some confidence. So it may at first be something that we take uh, uh, more because we see a teacher is able to do it. And I don't feel I can do it so well, but I try. As we do the practice more and more, the confidence becomes, we might say, verified. We know from our own experience. I've worked with in the past, the present time. It's kind of hard, but I have some past history. I know how to work with this. And also, I can have a community of people who I can compare notes with, right? And I can hopefully uh, work skillfully. So as we work with that confidence, it gets stronger. It gets what's called, it gets verified, to use the language of the Buddhist tradition. There's a distinction in the Buddhist tradition between what's called bright faith, which is a little bit more (coughs) uh, not based on experience, and then verified faith, which comes out of our own experience. We would say verified confidence. And so we... uh, the, the, uh, the word in the Pali language, sadha, literally means placing the heart on, placing the heart upon something. So we rest our hearts on this teaching or this uh, uh, confidence that it's workable and that something difficult is uh, workable. And of course, we have to, you know, we have to have that confidence has to be informed by mindfulness and by wisdom. And there's a lot more we could say about faith or confidence. Um, but ultimately, uh, maybe I'll end with just with uh, uh, two stories. Um, one of them is my own. The other one is from, it was from an American monk who was a meditator off the coast of Thailand. And I don't know all the reasons, but he eventually he was living in a cave And he eventually died there. I don't know how old he was or the conditions. But they found a lot of paintings in the cave. And um, there was uh, one of the sayings on the cave. It showed this smiling, wonderful, smiling, happy uh, monk. It was his own painting. And underneath it was the line, Oh joy to know that there is no happiness in the world. It has to be unpacked a little bit. What he was meaning was that there is no, uh, I think I would interpret it as meaning that there's no, uh, just happiness is not about having pleasant experiences. It was actually saying that happiness is about being balanced with whatever happens. But that, because the language is a little bit coded. I think it was meaning that, oh joy, that uh, things aren't always pleasant or that I don't have some lasting, pleasant plateau. And, I, and does that make some sense? Again, the language is a little bit jarring, the, way, the way, way it's said. Because I think he probably would say, oh joy, to know that there is no superficial happiness in the world, but there is a deep happiness from giving up the superficial happiness. Okay. But you can't... You can't... You can't hum that one. <laughs> you know... So, um, and then my own experience, a similar uh, experience, although I didn't die. Um, Okay, sorry. (laughs) Um, There was was an experience at a retreat. It was was at a longer retreat, about two months, and I was about six weeks into it. And I was really happy being on retreat. It was really like there was something that really was touching me and 
Uh, I had worked through some of my hang-ups about suffering that I mentioned earlier. And um, one day I woke up. I hadn't slept well. I was really, really irritated. And um, uh, my mind was not at all concentrated. My mind was totally distracted. I was irritated. My body didn't feel good. And I was really happy. Or there was a kind of contentment and confidence that was there, even though those particular conditions weren't the way I would have wanted it. And I think for me that's related somewhat to, in that state of mind, those unpleasant experiences, which in other states of mind might have led to suffering, were not getting activated. And there was a kind of resting and confidence and faith in just being able to have experience be workable. And that's, I think, what's being pointed. That is the turning point that's being pointed to in this teaching. Now, now, it doesn't have to have it quite like that. You don't have to be, oh, yes, negative, negative family experience. Oh, yes, wonderful. <laughs> it's not like that, but it's more we're pointing to the workability. That I can, basically, another way to say it is, I can keep my center increasingly with challenging experiences. It's a simple way to say it. And that's what's being pointed to. When, that, when we develop that capacity, everything starts shifting. So let's just sit for a moment. Any, um, again, any reflections or comments or questions? Please, Scott. The, the actual uh, sutta? The actual teaching. The actual teaching. Let's see. It's, uh, it's in the Samyutta Nikaya. It is the... Uh, it's in the Samyutta Nikaya, which is the uh, connected sayings. It's in the connected sayings on causality, the Upanisa Sutta, U-P-A-N-I-S-A, the Upanisa Sutta, translated as the Discourse on Supporting Conditions. Okay. And there's a very nice uh, account of the whole uh, text. You could look on the website, Access to Insight, and there is uh, an analysis of this text by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is an American-born monk who um, sometimes teaches uh, at Spirit Rock events, lives on the East Coast, and he's the main translator, the main translator of the currently authoritative translations of the discourses of the Buddha. So he's, a, he's, he's one of the most uh, experienced scholars and he, he, if you look on the Access to Insight for the essay called Transcendental Dependent Arising. So I've called it Liberative Dependent Origination. So, but that's his, uh, it's another translation. 
and you can see uh, his own analysis of both the sutta. He gives the text of the sutta, which isn't much, actually. It's just like a few pages. It's very, very brief. And then an analysis of the 12 factors. Okay, thanks. So any, any, any thoughts on your own attempts to you know, use that model of uh, intervening with the cycles? Uh, please, yeah. Was it Sarah? Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, Sarah. I was really commenting on uh, how these teachings can really be applied to just how your mind and heart maybe reacts at times with, with health issues, right? Right, which, which we all know, right? Which, uh, you know, we could you know, be pessimistic or tell scary stories or all sorts of things, right? And when, when we hear, we can really just... Uh, see and work with that, and it's uh, tremendously powerful, right? Yeah, thank you. How many can relate to that? <laughs> okay, thank you. But yeah, that's, this is, that's exactly the kind of situation, or it could be a difficult interpersonal interaction where we can apply this, and we can use that model, especially look at the, those four places where we intervene. I think that can really give a sense of not of using multiple tools. You know, with the difficult interaction, we try to speak skillfully. We look for where we're reactive. We refrain from certain kinds of speech. But then we also want to look at our own. We want to trace and look more deeply at our own patterns of reactivity. So that's quite a number of ways we intervene. Yeah. Please, yeah. It's sort of a reflection. I haven't quite got the pieces put together, but it seems very much like this sort of faith and sada is um, it's also like an integration of the fact that everything is impermanent the concept that everything is changing that it's mm-hmm. impermanent and that moves you forward yeah yeah so there's a comment on the relationship between the faith or confidence and sada and and the uh, understanding of impermanence I think I think yeah this is where as it were the wisdom, Dimension. Typically, we talk about the wisdom dimension in practice. Uh, classically, is particularly related to insights about uh, impermanence, the nature of suffering, and the roots of suffering, and then the uh, more interdependent nature of the self, or the lack of this solid, independent self. And so. Here, the the wisdom would play a role in the confidence. You know, I might be having a difficult experience, and I might say to myself, "It'll probably I'll probably feel differently about this tomorrow." That's wisdom reminding us, you know, because there's something about suffering in which we think it will never end, and we'll have the eternal return of the same. It's interesting. Suffering is kind of like that. I remember 
I remember being in a sauna. This is related. <laughs> I remember being in a sauna and feeling the um, unpleasantness of it being really, really hot. And there was something in me that thought, this, if I stay here forever, I'll die. And then I say, but I don't have to stay here forever. (laughs) And if I just stay here for the next three minutes, it's just unpleasant. And there was something in my mind that was kind of going to the future, making a story and creating tension. And when I just remembered impermanence and the fact that you know, it will be different or I have the option of leaving the sauna, would that our other patterns of suffering were so easy to leave as leaving <laughs> the sauna. But um, yeah, so I think that's important. That can be a very valuable reflection to have confidence, that, which is everything's changing. I, you know, it feels hard now, but it's going to change, right? So it's, it's a big thing. Maybe uh, last, last comment or point? Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you were talking about it, it brought to mind my own experiences that it's when being really presented with something particularly challenging or poignant, it comes to a point of acceptance. And it seems like it opens to, like, it opens to a realization of, of deeper aspects of our true nature. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the dukkha kind of like, is not so present, mm-hmm. right? And it's like your thing about optimi- optimistic view of, of the truth of human yeah. nature, which is yeah. actually radiant and, and all that. Yeah, yeah. So, so we have a difficult experience. And one interesting practice, I'll, I'll end with this, is that uh, I think the comment was that sometimes when we approach a difficult experience, let's say in the spirit of intervening, or we have, let's say we have some mindfulness or some perspective or we act ethically, um, it's actually very significant. And um, we could almost understand it uh, mathematically or numerically and say that even though the, uh, the difficult experience you know, sometimes is 70% of our experience or the difficult uh, feelings, thoughts, and so forth. There's 70% of our experience, but 30% is kind of mindful and wise, right? And what we can do with practice is we can actually, uh, that 30% is what you were calling true nature, the mindfulness, the confidence maybe. And what's possible to do is to actually uh, focus on sometimes on the mindfulness enough so it actually increases. It's, there are techniques one can use where you can tune into what's positive and actually let it get bigger. And sometimes when we are actually mindful, what started out as this overwhelming experience where it was like 90% hard stuff, 10% mindfulness, when we actually apply mindfulness, the subjective experience 10 minutes later might be 60% mindfulness and 40% hard stuff. I think it's that's getting at some of what you're talking about. It's a different way of looking. A different point, yeah. I mean, it was very experiential. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but but I think, or maybe another way of saying is that uh, sometimes when we approach a difficult experience differently, we activate these yeah. positive qualities. Absolutely. That's more what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's sometimes magical. You know, I once worked with a, a psychologist who actually used techniques. You can actually work with this subjectively. You know where we would, you know, he would. He would work with someone who would describe, you know, some some awful experience, and he would say, you know, you're really clear about that. 
you're really clear about how awful it is. Can you tune into your clarity? <laughs> and the clarity would be like 5 or 10%. The awful stuff would be 90. Let's tune into the clarity. There would actually be techniques for the, okay? And let the clarity grow, <laughs> right? You can actually do that experientially and it would grow, okay? Let it just grow. Let it be in your body and fill up your body. And with that guidance, you know, it's a technique one can actually do oneself. It's an interesting kind of technique. And he would use that kind of technique to actually let people's, um, uh, you know, even if it's feeling like it's really outnumbered by the hard stuff, if you tune into the positive stuff, it can actually get bigger and, and become more the uh, pivot for your response. So it's a very interesting aspect of, of what attention can do. Very, very interesting. I, I find that fascinating. I've, you know, I've used that myself and worked with people using techniques like that. It's very, very interesting. Okay. So, so we'll end, end with that. Last time I ended with the poem in praise of dependent origination. And just uh, can have appreciation that there was uh, a teacher and a whole tradition. And again, I think we find it parallel in different ways and in some other approaches who said, my focus is to look at the causes and conditions on the one hand which lead to suffering and on the other hand which lead to freedom, to wisdom, to love. It's remarkable that that happened right, in this world which is sometimes seems so caught in confusion, right? That there was someone who just had that clarity which is really um, can be the basis for uh, profound transformation. It's quite remarkable that that even occurred. Yeah, so we can be, be uh, grateful. So um, maybe end with two things. One is if there's an intention in your own mind as to how you'd like to take this in your own experience in the next week, let that be there. And then we also close by remembering that we do this for ourselves, but we also do it for others. And may our practice be fruitful for ourselves and for others, ultimately for all others. So thank you for your very, very kind and sustained attention. I can feel that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.